Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Teacher's Point of View. Um, in these episodes, we are massively challenging the, the status quo in education and kind of looking at where education is and what really needs to evolve to make sure that we are moving in the right direction. Um, like education is in a place now where we've ha had to adapt so much over the last 12 months and it's given us a good opportunity to think about the kind of future we want to create. and by implementing the right strategies in education now, we can create a better world in the future. And um, some of these conversations are fantastic. It's all about kind of challenging ideas and coming up with collaborative approaches to how we can improve education. Hope you all take nuggets from what you do from, from this episode, um, from all the episodes. And please do give us a like and a subscribe if you uh, are enjoying the episodes and, and the series. Um, but hope you guys enjoy, thank you. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Teacher's Point of View. We've got uh, Julian Knight on, on this episode and uh, she's had an amazing career in teaching. So I'm just going to pass it over to you, Julia. Could you just kind of introduce yourself and uh, kind of explain how you got into the profession and what it means to you? Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I feel very honoured to be part of it. I have to say the list of guests that have gone before me have been absolutely phenomenal. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I started teaching in 2004. Uh, I was part of the graduate teacher training programme that rolled out. Uh, I left university and um, I knew, I knew, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher um, and literally fate and destiny just put me in the right place at the right time for the right job. So I trained in a school in South East London, as you can probably tell from the accent. <laughs> and um, I was very lucky because it meant that my student loans paid off. Uh, so I was very much incentivized to be in this profession. And it was a really exciting time. Um, we were seeing changes in politics and the, the, the educational policies were starting to make, to come through. Buildings were being built, you know, classrooms were being improved. And it was a real sense that we were doing, you know, you know, well and good for, for, for society. Um, safeguarding child protection started to become a big focus and we were working with the local police, we were working with social workers and we were really beginning to feel like we had a, a value and place in society. So I think I started um, teaching probably at the right time and I started teaching with about 26 other NQTs and graduate teachers. So we were all in this massive school of two and a half thousand kids and we were very, very close knit. So I'm still friends with a lot of them today. Um, they're all on different parts of the world, Hong Kong, China and Indonesia and Bangkok and all these amazing places and London, of course. Um, and we've still got that very close network. And now we're a little bit older and uh, yeah, maybe a little bit wiser as well. But for me, teaching is, is still very much my passion. Yeah. Well, what is it about teaching that you uh, love so much? I think that it's the interaction with the kids. I mean, I've been a senior school teacher, um, secondary, I'm a secondary English teacher, um, and it's just the joy and the conversations that you can have around your subject and the different ideas that you can bring to students, you know, opening their eyes to different ways of living. I mean, English literature is beautiful because you get to walk in so many different um, footsteps and paths that you wouldn't have in your own life. And I think it can open children's minds to different possibilities, um, culturally, uh, globally, whatever it might be, it gives them a, a way of seeing the world. So I'm, I'm, I'm a really fierce advocate for my subject. Yeah, fair. I mean, so obviously you've, uh, you, you said you got into teaching at the right time, um, but then you, you left the UK in 2009, didn't you? I mean, what, what kind of like, like pushed you to, to leave the UK and no longer teach in the UK? Well, I actually left 
left in 2012 and it was a year after about 10 of my friends had moved on. So I had a, a few go to Australia, a few go to Bangkok um, and it was the Facebook feeds. I was getting pictures of all these amazing beaches and going, oh my God, you know, I'm looking at, you know, South East London's finest uh, <laughs> pub or what you know, cafes, and and there they are on these lovely beach bars in you know Cambodia or Vietnam and all these other amazing places, and it was just wow. Can I do that? You know, can I can I up six? Can I take my family with me? Can I do that? And the answer is yes, you can. You know, you can be you can be brave and you can apply for those jobs. But I was very lucky. My first job was actually as head of English for a very small school on the outskirts of Bangkok, and and it was such a great um, introduction to international school teaching. It was a very small school, uh, it was a very close knit community, and it meant that we made friends quite easily. Um, and God bless my husband, he gave up his career to to follow me, um, and he actually retrained to be a teacher. So he now teaches uh, PE. Uh, junior school PE. So we've actually all come together as these like education, um, you know, specialists in different fields. But he was working as a corporate fundraiser in London. I was ahead of year in, in London and we just never saw each other. And for three days of the week, our young son was with my mother-in-law. And again, you know, thank goodness for her because she was and is amazing. But what life is that for young parents who never see their kid? And moving abroad afforded us childcare. It afforded us the opportunity to to still do the job that you know we've loved, um, but you know, and have more time. And it's just different. It's just a different way of life being an international teacher. I sure. can't be a strong advocate for it. I mean, wh why do you think like you didn't have time when you were here in the UK? Because I think the profession is so, I mean, when I left with the profession was so hell bent on, you know, different policies and, you, you know, you were given PPA, a 10% PPA timetable, for example, but then as the workload increased, the PPA never increased. So you ended up having to do a lot more work outside of home, you know, safeguarding, for example, became a real issue. And, you know, you were responsible, you know, if anything happened to that child, you were responsible. And uh, And I don't, take that away in a, in a negative way. Of course, we need to be responsible. Of course, we need to safeguard every child. But the systems, the mechanisms that came into place put huge pressures on teachers that, you know, made us buckle. And it was not an easy decision to leave, but it was either leave the country and do the job I love or leave the profession completely. So I chose to, to leave the country. I mean, what do you think the problem was, though? Because I, I know it's very hard to kind of pinpoint it, but because uh, obviously it's a massive problem for uh, teachers at the moment. I mean, most teachers kind of leave within the first two or four years of being in the profession. I mean, what, what, what do you think it is? What is this massive strain on teachers at the moment? It's, it's magic. It's, it's a magic formula, isn't it? It's just not enough time. You know, for every lesson that you teach, you should have at least 30, to 30 minutes to 60 minutes planning and preparation and marking time. As an English teacher, when, you're, when you've got five classes of 30 kids, marking on a two-week cycle, the pressure of exams, it's a huge amount of work for people. It's not an easy profession. And I think that when you are juggling so many different plates, um, and, it, you know, it might be a profession that, if you're single with no family, you can do, but it's incredibly lonely and it's incredibly difficult profession to, to, to stay in and to maintain all of those high standards. So I don't think it's any one thing, but I think if, if we are going to look at how we improve the profession, it's got to be along the, 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 the line, um, along the lines of time. You know, we've got to give our teachers time to mark, to plan, to prep. Um, and when we give teachers time, good things happen in the classroom. 
And, you know, and of course, abroad, we don't have the scrutiny of Ofsted. I mean, there are various different infection processes across the world, but they are not to the same. They don't have reputations and league tables hanging on them that then filter down to the staff. You know, they are there to be a supportive mechanism, whereas Ofsted often felt punitive. And it's just it's just the immense pressure. What other profession do you know that is constantly criticised by all levels of government, all levels of society? You know, teachers, you know, have the, they bear the brunt of every negative headline. So it's not an easy profession for people to come in and stay in, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a shame, isn't it? Because teachers do go above and beyond to try to to help these kids and give them a safe place and try to make sure that they uh, they, they give them an opportunity to succeed. You know, um, and obviously you don't get massive amounts of support and you, like from the power department. Um, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because now it's very much focused on data entry and um, you don't necessarily get to be creative as a teacher and you've got to follow curriculum needs. And like you said, Ofsted comes in and there's massive amounts of pressure as as a teacher profession. And then just to top it off, you don't exactly get the most amount of money, you know. I mean, you don't get it for that reason anyway. But um, obviously, like, it, it's a struggle. But the money thing was never the issue. If you'd said to me, um, you know, we, we can either increase your pay or we can increase your non-contact time, most teachers would say, I'd rather have non-contact time increase. Don't get me wrong, money's a factor. We all need to live and we all need to pay the bills. But the job is such a special job that you go into it for different values. And if you're a career teacher and you're jumping the, the hoops to get to headship, then you're not in the, the right job. It's not, a, it's not a job where you are you know, rewarded financially. It's a job where you're rewarded. It's a heart and soul and mind job. And I think if, the, if we can crack the idea of teacher well-being, being able to take some of that pressure off them and give them a little bit more time, the profession would thrive and you would see such a, a difference. There is no teacher standing in the classroom, and I truly believe this, there is no teacher standing in the classroom that isn't there for the kids. They might be worried about, you know, mortgages, bills, whatever it is, but they are there professional and they're there to, to do the best for a kid, for sure. Every child in that room is important. No, I do believe that. Yeah, I mean, in some respects, though, the, the UK education system is probably um, one of the most professional education systems across the world in, in some respects, isn't it? I mean, what, what do you think the major flaw is? Because it is massively scrutinised, isn't it? So what do you think it gets massively scrutinised for? I think that when you, when you, are, when you judge a classroom on a 10-minute visit, from a stranger who doesn't know the heart and soul of the school, you're never going to be able to capture what a school is about. A school, wherever you are in the world, is the heart and soul of a community. You know, you might have had generations of families attend that school. And to judge it from, from a stranger's perspective on one lesson on a random day of the week is just yeah. a completely unfair way of doing it. Um, and teachers aren't trusted. Can you imagine if somebody said to a doctor, oh, and I know you're about to go into an operation today, but I'm just going to come and observe to make sure you're doing it right. I mean, you know, that level, and then we're, and then we're going to grade you, and then we're going to publicise the league table so we can see which are the best doctors and, and, and nurses in your hospital. I know hospitals have the league tables as well, but the scrutiny that teachers get is, is far beyond any of my understanding, for sure. I mean, it's a big problem, isn't it? Like, especially like kind of giving uh, offset um, 
ratings to, to schools and you kind of put them in league, league tables, it makes it incredibly difficult for the failing schools or the schools that require improvement to, to kind of be able to come out of the, that, repu- to, to get away from that reputation and to attract the right quality teachers to make the difference in some respects. And it, it, like you said, in, in other countries across the world, the, the, the inspectors are in somewhat to support the, the schools, whereas this kind of like labels you and it kind of just moves on, doesn't it? And then you kind of expect it to get everything sorted within a, in a space of time, but and they come back every four years for two days and they judge you. I mean, it's it's quite ridiculous in some respects, isn't it? I mean, what, what like I mean, what would be a better system for the UK? Like, what would work better? We need to stop seeing schools as the the magic bullet that's going to fix society. Because how can you teach a child, um, you know, to read and write if he comes from a home where he might be sharing a bedroom, doesn't have a safe space? You know, this is school is one part of the jigsaw of the fabric of society, and there needs to be a much more holistic approach to it. A child that comes from, you know, a, a, a seriously impoverished background or has lots of emotional, you know, um, issues is never going to perform as well as a child that doesn't have those. And I think that we need to be much more um, on board with working with multi-agencies like we were when I began teaching. Um, and I think that's another thing. But also, if you have a, a failing comprehensive in an area that doesn't have, you know, that has high unemployment, what is school for? Because if I'm teaching you GCSEs for you to get a job, but you know your older brother and your cousin and your granddad never had a job, what incentive is there for you to get those GCSEs? There isn't any. And I think London was very lucky because um, it had a a ring-fenced money um, back in the early 2000s. And London Challenge gave children you know, uh, an opportunity to to have lots of input into teaching. So, for example, you know, there was the, the, the big push for maths and English, for example. But that didn't happen outside of London. And when all of that money went into London, you saw results increase. And that's the thing. It's a very clever balance of putting money in, making sure that money is well spent, but also making sure that there are opportunities that come out of it. And when you're dealing with multi-generations of unemployment, as there are in some parts of the UK, you're, you're, the school is never going to be able to fix all of those problems. So I don't think it's a school issue. I don't think it's a teacher issue. You might catch one or two children and you know push them through, but it's got a, it's, it's a whole government uh, government level that we need to change. We need to think about that. Yeah, for sure. What I mean, what, what do you think that they can implement? just to kind of give better opportunities for those schools in those areas? But it's opportunities. It's not necessarily school opportunities. It's opportunities beyond the school gate. It's your youth club. It's your, you know, your church services. It's, it's, it's opportunities beyond the remit of the average class teacher. And I just don't think it's for school leaders to fix you know, it, we have to have a bigger conversation about where we want our society to go. And, so, you know, societies like New Zealand, Finland, you know, they have a, a system that is, it, it's not just all hell-bent on schools. It looks at the bigger picture. Yeah, of course. I mean, in, in those um, sort, of, uh, sort of countries that you mentioned, obviously education is seen as like the highest order in some respects. It's, it's so highly regarded. And uh, even, uh, I believe, in China, I mean, they they literally put education first. Here in the UK, they were like worried about opening bars, restaurants, and like making the economy going. But everything based in China was about how are we going to get schools open again? Everything else is afterwards. Um, I mean, like every single industry stems from education, doesn't it? I mean, it, 
and in the UK, we we just seen like if you went and taught anywhere in the in the world, if you've got a qualification, if you've got QTS from the UK, you are seen on a on a massively high pedestal, aren't you? And but here in the UK, almost like scrutinising the profession for doing a job and. And like I said, I mean, it, I find it quite frustrating. And obviously, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of ranting on now, but it, it, I find it quite frustrating because teachers genuinely like go above and beyond for these children. They, they literally give them a safe place. They give them education. They give them opportunities when nobody else does. They give them love when they might not have it from their own mum and dad. Do you know what I mean? And, and like for, it's not just simple as the, the government tell you to do something. You stand in front of 30 kids and that's it. You teach them a lesson, you know? Um, and, and you're right. I think, I think that's the biggest problem is, is retaining staff is because there's so much pressure on UK teachers. And, and even in America, I'm pretty sure it's Western culture as a, as a whole. We, we, we scrutinise the hell out of it. And a big problem of that is probably because of the media. Like the media put unnecessary pressure on the profession. It's almost like just let them get on with their job. They, they know what's best for their kids. And, and I think the big problem with places like, off, like systems like Ofsted and league tables you kind of and having curriculums that you need to meet. I think it's so difficult to try to get teachers to be creative and let their passion come across and do what's best for their kids because it's almost like trying to run with one leg. Do you know what I mean? It's, you're kind of like uh, like um, paralyzed in some ways and how you you know. I mean, it's it's such a shame. Like, what what would you do in terms of like what direction do you think education kind of needs to move into? Well, this is an interesting conversation because um, I'm currently in talks with Oxford um, University Press and AQA about a new curriculum they brought in for international schools. And actually what they've done is they've merged the, the, the gold standard, as it's known, of the UK, of the English curriculum, with the more progressive model of problem-based learning, which seems to be where most international schools are headed. So the GCSEs are still seen, and A-levels are still seen very much as the gold standard of, of international education. But actually, they don't, you cannot have, they're not skills-based. And the skills that we need for the for the future, because education is very good about looking backwards. We're still teaching kids the way we did in Victorian time, but we need to be looking that way now. And we yeah. need to be looking about back take what we what we what we're good at and we need to push it to the future. So things like problem based learning, collaborative learning, and the IB is very good at all of those skills, but that's not necessarily an acceptable curriculum in terms of cost for every school. So one of the things that we're doing in, in my current school is we're looking at a curriculum that blends both of these. How can we give children the gold standard, the stamp of you know education, which is what the UK is incredibly good for? And how can we also give them the skills that, you know, the continent, Europe are, you know, very much in favour of? So problem-based learning, for example. So, that, so AQA have come up with this whole curriculum all the way from EYFS all the way up to A-levels that supports this idea of collaborative learning. And right. I think that's a really exciting move. And, and I know that's going to horrify some people, um, but we need to start teaching children how to talk to each other, how to, how to communicate, how to look at a problem in a creative way, you know. Um, and I don't think the UK curriculum is strong enough in those areas. We're not as creative as we and it's it's such a good point actually because when you look at places like Finland and Denmark who are now focused on I mean they get a curriculum that they've got to adhere to in some respects but it's completely um, like they, they've got complete autonomy I mean they literally will do what's best for their kids but it's not just about teaching subjects 
switched over to now teaching topics. So you can kind of mix biology with PE and you can kind of make it interesting for those kids that love sport. You can get them to be interested and inspire to learn biology because you're mixing them in. And it's such a clever way of, of in, like teaching children. Like you can, you can blend it and you can mold it and you can kind of adapt it to the way you want. And I think in some respects, you're right. We do have some, we do have an amazing education system in the UK. Gold standard, but we haven't moved with the times. Like technology's advanced. Like we're, I think, interpersonal skills, like soft skills, like those are crucial in in the twenty first century. You know, and uh, we don't, we're not doing that in the UK curriculum at the moment. So when um, when we moved, up, so all of the schools in Bahrain were closed in February last year. So I was still enrolled at my previous school, and we got a, head, a letter from the head teacher saying we won't be opening after half term. Please prep for online learning. And literally, schools went from knowing nothing about Zoom straight into online. And we we have had to adapt so, so quickly. And I can't think of any other profession that has had to adapt so quickly to the changes that we've had to. So we can, we as a profession, we've shown that we're resilient. As a profession, we've shown that we are more than able to, to move with the times. We now need the frameworks and the, the teaching philosophies to also move with the times. And it's been interesting because in Bahrain, we've... We've been we're under we're under the guidance of the Ministry of Health. We're under the guidance of the Ministry of Education, and we're under the guidance of um, the Interior Minister as well. So all of these rules and regulations, schools have had to be incredibly strict to to implement, and it's been really really difficult. So we've often you've been planning for something, and the changes come like that, and we've had no forewarning. So things like social distancing, um, making sure our classrooms are you know. 1.2 meters high, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like the schools in the UK, but we've been better at it than the UK because we've had government support. So the track and trace system here is world class, and and I say world class because I know that's a phrase that our Boris likes to use a lot, <laughs> but it is world class. Right? Um, Track and Trace knows exactly where our corona cases are. They contact you straight away. They can tell which supermarket you were in and, in and for how long. And yes, it's an invasive piece of technology, but it's kept the residents of Bahrain really safe. Before every student enters school, they have to be temperature checked. You have to sign a declaration as a, as a parent that you're sending your child to school and they're fit and well. And the minute that those children are ill, they're sent home. And there is no, um, there is no messing with any of those rules. You have to do what you're told so I think the level of leadership is crucial you're only ever going to be as good as the person above you and if people above you are not showing that level of leadership then you're never going to have uh, you know a functioning school or a functioning institute so yeah. I think that's been probably the biggest problem here in the UK is the amount of times like their policies or legislation or their advice has changed. And it's, uh, I mean, I was, uh, until about July, I genuinely gave the government so much support. I was like, no, they're doing the best they can. They're trying to do everything they can. Give them a break. But the problem is like when you follow the news every single day and you see it change every three to four weeks, it's not that I don't think that they're doing the best that they can, but I just don't believe in them any, anymore. Do you know what I mean? And it's it's two very different things. I know it's, it's one thing doing the best you can, but it's, it's it's the problem is that it's a constant 180 turns that you're making, and and naturally nobody knows where they're going. Like if if you've got a direction, you feel like you're on a journey with someone. You feel like you know what things are going to get better. But when when you're in a, in a constant like like you're constantly going in circles, it, it just it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere. And um, I think I think that's a big problem here in the UK. Well, you know, when you when the scientists are all saying back in, you know, February and March that children are super spreaders, let's close the schools, 
that science hasn't changed. And keeping those schools open in the UK now, you've still got the same science, which says they're super spreaders. So if your goal is to make sure that your economy stays stable, then you are you are literally shutting the door after the horse has bolted because you're so far down that line, you're never going to get that back. And unless they go on a total lockdown, which again, you know, has its pros and cons, how are you going to maintain it? And if you're going to keep schools open, then you're going to have to do what we've done here, which is provide teachers with PPE, make sure that the, the kids are temperature checked when they walk in, and you're going to have to invest money in those systems. And that's what the UK hasn't done. It hasn't looked at how China coped. Um, it hasn't looked at how New Zealand did it. It hasn't looked at Australia, how they've done it. And they certainly haven't looked at Bahrain, who were advised by one of England's top scientists and it, it, throughout the pandemic. So I just think that they've tried to do what the UK has always done, which goes, we know best, follow our lead. Yeah, and it's not good. And it's me and the mediocre response at the beginning of the, the pandemic has led to this disaster. Um, and for once, as an international school, I can say that we, as an international school teacher, I can say that we're ahead of the times because usually international schools are maybe a couple of years or a few months behind. But we've been on the cutting edge of how to deal with this since it happened um and it's made me feel very safe granted i've not seen my mum since summer last year um but she's 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 safe my mother-in-law is safe and we have to just count our blessings but i think the uk could have done a, a much better job sadly absolutely i mean it's, it's remarkable isn't it because at the end of the day like teachers have still been on the front line um, and it, it's such an amazing profession because it's obviously talk about doctors and national health service but i mean teachers spoken about enough you know and and for what they do they're, they're on the front line and they're risking their lives but not even just that but like you said you're you're sacrificing meeting your loved ones and it, like so is my sister like she hasn't come to our house because our parents are elderly in such a long time because obviously she doesn't want to pass anything on and um yeah i mean this whole that's what this podcast is about to create awareness for what teachers are doing and, and ultimately to thank you all right because you are doing an amazing job and without this without this profession we, we'd be screwed as as a as a as a, as a globe you know um i mean is there anything in particular that you want to speak about that's that's important to you i think from 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 my end i just i would just like to see a little bit more positivity in the profession but yeah. i think we need to just i think that you know as teachers we're, we're just acutely aware that we are doing a good job um and i'm really pleased that the charter college of teaching for example are championing our cause i think there are a lot of there's a lot of good moves being made okay. to bolster our profession so i i i think that really bright future coming i think that you know that the, the pandemic will actually show the different skills and the ways that education has to change i don't think it's a very negative thing i think that you know we, there are so many positives that have come out of it so for example connections made on zoom parents evenings no longer have to be held in a school hall we can do those online from the comfort of our homes and offices um there are so many positive things that have come out of these and the, the, the flip side of this is how are we going to make sure that our children are okay? What are we doing? And school is the best place for them. So in one way, keeping schools open and keeping them safe is really, really important because I think those emotional issues would be stored up. So I don't think there's a huge amount that, that I need to say that has, hasn't been said already. I think that, you know, teachers are very good at being very pragmatic and sensible about things. I just wish that the, the layer above them, you know, wasn't yeah. so... And I think that's important. 
Absolutely. And it's, uh, I mean, I, I put a post up on LinkedIn a, a few days ago and it's got quite a lot of interaction, but basically it's, uh, I sort of said, um, I've, I've heard the term uh, that children aren't meeting the sort of curriculum needs uh, are falling behind quite a lot. But I mean, I think for a lot of people forgetting that they actually survive in a pandemic. I mean, it's like emotionally and um, and uh, like mentally, this is it's such a big thing for them. And it could be for some of these, it's going to be traumatic. It's not just about meeting curriculum needs. Like kids are clever; they'll pick things up. Like I mean, I I never learned anything in school that I'm doing now. Like that's that's job my my job related. Do you know what I mean? So I mean, it's like kids are will, will pick things up, but it's about preparing them. Like how are you going to get into a job and and, and be able to hold your nerve and like and take take the bad days as they come and like be able to be there like for them emotionally, like to, to build their emotional intelligence in some respects. And I think I think we're we're too focused on academic like exam results at the end of the year and not focus on like what 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 kind of people we're trying to make these children into you know and i think like gavin mccormack is, is an advocate of that like he just he wants to absolutely like what he wants his children to be good people to say thank you have manners but also to find their niche and i think I think education kind of needs to evolve and move on to that. But I think the biggest difficulty here in the UK is when you've got 30 kids in front of you as a teacher, I mean, how are you meant to do that? And with the amount of time you've got, and it goes back to your original point, um, obviously you just don't get enough time here in the UK to be able to do your job effectively. When I was head of year, I used to stand on the gates of the of the of the school, and I used to do dinner duty. And I knew all of my kids' names. I knew all of what you know their parents and what they did. And you know, when you have that personal connection with kids and you have that personal connection with families, wonderful things will happen. You said something about I'm doing a job now that my school never taught me how to do. And you're right, but actually, the fact that you're able to talk to a stranger competently and you're very confident in, you know, in your approach skills you would have learned at school school isn't just about academics you know and i think we have to be very very careful about dividing it up into academic pastoral but your social skills you know the fact that you would have had a fight with your best friend at school and you you worked it out is what has made you the the grown-up that you are today and school has school has such a it's a microcosm of society. There'll always be the one person you never liked. There'll always be the person that you were a bit jealous of. And it, and it teaches you how to manage those emotions. And it's not just about the academics. And the pandemic has shown us that school plays a vital role in the social development of, of, of children. But, for example, my son, my oldest is nine, he learned to ride a bike in the pandemic. We wouldn't have had, you know, that opportunity to, to we, obviously, he would have learned eventually, but we had that opportunity to be more outside. So. Don't underestimate the skills that the kids have picked up from fighting with their, you know, cousins and siblings in the house to, to learning to ride a bike and all the other things that would give them skills for learning. Um, it, school isn't just about academics, and I think the sooner we start to, to value all of a, a child's needs, the, the better education will be. Absolutely, because I mean, you mentioned it about interpersonal skills, and it's uh, it's quite important in the real world nowadays, but. It's not. It's not judged on. Like, I mean, you're not tested on that. You're not. You're not kind of like. It, it, I know. Obviously, you might have your arguments, but if you're if you're having like your debates or whatever, and you've been able to work things out, and you develop those interpersonal skills. But at the end of the year, you're being told you're absolutely rubbish at at, at education. And 
um, you're basically no good at school. You're gonna, you're not gonna have confidence when you're going for uh, to apply for jobs, even though you might have skills that don't necessarily need those academic results. Do you know what I mean? So I think we do need a combination of of both. I think we do one bit really well, but we've completely neglected the other other bit. And I think we just need to combine it, like other places like Finland and Bahrain and international schools have started to do quite quite well, um, from what I understand. So um, yeah, I mean, I think I think education is like I said is is an amazing thing, but it just needs to kind of move in the right direction now. I think Gavin McCormack nailed it when he talked about how to move his assessment to not just assessing what they'd learned in a classroom, but also assessing the skills that are needed for life, you know, interviewing, holding eye contact and all the things that he mentioned. And I think that I think that we need to move away from the idea that academics is the only way to measure a child's growth and development. If a child can dance, draw and sing, that's just as valuable as a child that can read and write. And how is it that some school, some education systems like Finland and Sweden, they don't start teaching them until they're seven, you know? And yet you, a child will still learn to read and write. Why can't they just be children until, you know, and, and we bring those skills in through play and development and, I just think there's such a, a, a more creative and more beautiful possibility that we haven't yet touched upon in the UK. I think we'll get there. You think? I hope so. Because, I mean, like, you look at places like the biggest the biggest corporations in the world. Like, you talk about Google and you talk about Amazon. I mean, they have the most trendiest creative offices, right? I mean, it's to inspire creativity. Like, that's what they want. That's what they want from the future workforce. I mean, like, if we want to compete as a, as a nation with people across the globe, we need to be able to like um, offer creative workforce, don't we? we? We need to adapt with the times and like to, to simply do maths and science and English exams at the end of the year to, to test your knowledge on what you've learned over two years. It's it's not something that you're necessarily going to be tested on in the future. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I think education needs to, I think it's on its way though. I mean, a lot of people feel this way, I think. And uh, I think educators across the world, I feel like there's this community and it's almost this revolution in the air of, of the way that education kind of needs to go. And I'm quite excited to see where it goes actually. It's coming. The revolution is coming. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing because it's not just people. It's revolution. Yeah, no, absolutely. For the, for the better. And I think if there's ever a year that it's going to happen, it's got to be the year of COVID to be uh, the initiation of it in some respects. And um, I mean, I think uh, a lot of um, what the COVID has showed us is a massive gap between the advantage and the disadvantage. And it's just highlighted that. And I think if we can get more creative in the way that we do education and teach uh, the children from deprived areas, we might be able to get more out of them and, and kind of give them a better opportunity to, to offer after school, you know, because it's not just about academics. Kids are naturally gifted and they all go on and do really well. And, but for those kids that aren't necessarily, there needs to be another way to assess that to give them a chance of success, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's exciting times because I think it is... I think once we start to value things like BTECs and vocational courses in the same way that we value an A-level course, once we start to see that, you know, there's not just one route into university or into the working life and, and value one more than the other, once we start to give education equal status, then things will start to change. I mean, doing the graduate teacher training programme meant that I was fierce in the classroom, I was hot on behaviour management, but the philosophical side, the, the pedagogy, I didn't actually know much about that until I started my MA. Um, but did I need that side of it? Did, did, would, would have a PGCE made me a better teacher? I don't know. I can't answer that. But I know that when I dropped into that classroom for the first time, it was sink or swim. And I had to do the job I was given. So 
I think we need to look at different routes into teaching. I think we need to reassess the, the, the training courses that teachers are given. And above all, if we can give teachers one thing, we just need to give them extra time. We just need to give them extra time. And uh, in some respects, I think um, there's, there's amazing um, work being done by people outside of education that used to be teachers. Um, I spoke to a lady from America yesterday, she started a company called Happy Teacher Revolution. And then in the UK, we've got people like Sarah Bramble, Rebecca Daniels, who kind of work on teacher wellbeing. Um, and it's, it's so important. I mean, how important do you think that is to kind of get into your teacher training program in some respects? I think that when young teachers go into the profession, they're doing it for the right reasons. And I think it's about how we keep them in the profession. And teacher wellbeing is not cakes on a Friday. Teacher wellbeing is being able to go and see your child's school play. It's about saying to the head teacher, I'm not, I, I don't have a lesson this afternoon. Would you mind if I, if I went home or trusting them to go home or trusting them to come in if they don't have a registration or leave during the day, whatever it might be, you know, PPA does not need to be done in your classroom. It can be done in your home. Um, there are so many more imaginative ways that schools can do wellbeing if we just let go of the idea that everybody, including the teachers, needs to be shackled. You know, if we, I understand that, oh, that, that, that we need rules and regulations, but we treat teachers like we treat children, and that's got to change. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's dated now, isn't it? Time to move on. I mean, again, sorry to go back to the private sector, but in the private sector, I mean, so much money is spent on like research and into how to, uh, to retain staff, and a big part of that is is well being of your staff and making sure that you they feel appreciated and trusted and um, kind of encouraged and inspired. And and I think a big part of, I mean, some schools do it really well. I mean, some schools don't and they haven't caught up yet and they don't focus on the well being of teachers. And you hear some horror stories, don't you? Which is which is like and it's heartbreaking because teachers they, they go in and they want to make a difference to these kids and then they they obviously don't get the right level of support. But I mean, yeah, I just hope we, we can do something to make a difference and and show teachers, you know what, you're not alone. Um, and uh, again, this is what this podcast is about in some respects. I just think give give teachers the opportunity to collaborate with each other, give schools the opportunity to work with each other. You know, teachers that sit in a classroom, uh, you know, it's a solitary profession. You're on your own a lot of the time. So if you don't have that connection with your head of department or the teacher next door, then what do you have? And I think we need to move away from, like I said, the punitive, you know, lesson observation into conversations. How did your lesson go today? I wasn't very good. And not judging people because their lesson wasn't very good. You know, the amount of times I've walked into a lesson thinking right I'm going to do it this way and suddenly gone the mood of the class or you know the wind was blowing southwesterly or you know the internet wasn't working so you've got to adapt you've got to change um and we should be celebrating that level of flexibility that teachers are able to do and if I walk into a classroom and children are engaged learning happy having a conversation surely that's what it's all about if I walk yeah. into a classroom and they're, sat there, they're just you know staring at the board listening to a teacher what, what are we really teaching our kids? We're teaching them to be automators. We're teaching them to be robots. So yeah. we need to have a level where we've got the rules embedded. You know, they know what the expectations are. This is my classroom, my rules. But you also can be yourself. You can be creative. And there's so many ways that we can make schools a much happier place. And, and it does start with the management. You know, the management have got to see teachers less as children and more as, you know, professionals. That's yeah. the private sector does. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and to get their input, like ask them, because they're the professionals, they're the ones that are working on the front line every single day. And I think, um, again, like when you have an education secretary, that's not ever been a teacher. It, it's mind blowing because like you said earlier, I mean, you wouldn't go to a doctor and tell them how to do an operation on you in some respects. Like you, you go to let them do their job and you give them autonomy to know because they know their children better than everybody else and it's just let them get their, get on with their job do you know what I mean um, it's what you go train for I mean what you do PGC if you're going to watch over you anyway. I think if you're going if you're going to the, the, the one skill that you might not be able to teach everybody but every teacher should have is empathy if yeah. you can't empathise with your children if you can't see when you know little Johnny or little Karen haven't ha have had a bad day and you can't respond to that then that's where the difficulties are in a classroom and then equally that spreads out to a year group and that spreads out to the school but we have to give we have to give children the we expect more of children than we do of adults. So we're not, we don't allow children to have a bad day. We don't allow them to be miserable or excited. We, we try and contain their emotions yeah. too much. And so when they become adults, they're allowed to be happy, sad, have a bad day, but not when they're children. And it, it always amazes me that as adults, we expect more of children than we do of ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, we'll leave it there. I mean, we've gone through quite a lot and uh, obviously there's so many important po points to kind of take from it and a lot of nuggets for, for young teachers, I'm sure. But I think the key the key aspects, obviously, was the, the way that education needs to go. And I think we do need to kind of move towards teachers having more autonomy and, um, and overall, like, the sort of being more, more, uh, more sort of focused on actual teacher well-being opposed to just throwing loads of stuff at them and, and it being a data input and um, and you kind of just, yeah, literally try get, get told to get on with your job. I mean, education is moving, the way children learn are moving, the outside world post-education is moving so much. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. Education is an exciting journey and I can't wait to see what happens in the next five years or so. I mean, I'm sure it's going to, we'll catch up in about five years' time and we'll talk about all the changes that have happened in the next in the last five years. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be good. <laughs> yeah, but amazing. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I mean, is there anything you want to say just before before you go? No, I think that you know you're, you're doing an amazing job, and thank you for having me. And if any teachers want to connect with me, if they've got any, I don't know anything they'd like to ask me, if I could be of any help, mentoring, anything, I would be more than happy. And they can get in touch via Twitter or my LinkedIn, which I think you can put up on your your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's Julian Knight, everyone. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, absolutely lovely having you on. And we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Thank you all for watching and thank you to my special guest for coming on. Um, if you guys did like the episode, please give us a like and a subscribe. Uh, obviously, we've got three episodes a week until the end of the academic year. Going to continue challenging the status quo and talking about kind of how education can develop. Um, please give me a massive shout out if uh, you want to get in touch. My email is tj at qtslondon.co.uk. That's Q for Quebec, T for Tango, S for Sierra. Um, and obviously my, my LinkedIn profile is TJ Jutler and my Twitter feed is QTS London. Um, hope you guys enjoy and see you on the next episode.